everybody. Uh, welcome to Brave New Workforce. Today we'll be talking about company culture and how to build and maintain a healthy, productive, and engaged remote team. Um, this is Anna Kudina. I have uh, co-hosts Larry Cornett and Trip O'Dale here. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hey, Anna. It's going well. Yeah, it's going well. It's a little rainy here in Seattle today, but it's a Friday. We're, we're excited. Nice. And we also have a special guest, Valerie Liberty. Hi, Anna. Thanks for inviting me. Hi, guys. I'm excited to be here. It's been a long time. We worked together a long time ago when we were at Adobe, when she was the chief of staff for the design group that I was working in, sort of the lead, the which really translates to uh, cruise director and lead cheerleader and head of culture for uh, a gigantic herd of cats that are, nobody wants to believe that everybody's a snowflake and everybody wants to believe they're special. And Val's job was to make sure that everybody was happy and engaged and it's a very hard job. So Val, uh, after we both left Adobe, um, you ended up with Balsamic, which is like the best one of the best love little startups that it doesn't want to be bigger in the entire valley you've created an entire generation of product managers that love to create bad art uh with squiggly lines and in, in, in mock-up uh tell us a little bit about your journey how you got here and tell us a little bit about balsamic yeah well first of all those squiggly little lines we like to call it a look no one is afraid to criticize, right? So, yeah, if you remember, um, Trip. We're all silently judging your squiggly lines. Just from design, <laughs> I just want to tell you. I welcome it. I, I'll take it on the chin. If you remember, it was like 100 years ago that we worked at Adobe, which was a spinoff, a combination with Macromedia. And when I was at Macromedia, I had the only digital camera in the in the building and they were like six hundred dollars and you know i kept it locked up in my file cabinet but at the end of the day i would walk around and take pictures of all of the whiteboards and send them to the different pms or engineering managers to make sure that they captured that um, design and all of that iteration so i fell in love with my genius partner, Peldi, who is our technical founder. And he had come to San Francisco from Italy to learn how to make a software company and decide if he could possibly do replicate the valley in his hometown of Bologna. So uh, as and things so, are changing. Spo spoiler, was he able to replicate the valley? And would you want to? <laughs> he you know, we all learn every breath is a is a moment and we learn every day. So he replicated the great parts of the valley and what we needed for a good tool in software design and highlighted a phase of software design that uh, a lot of people skip over. And that was the beginning of this little experiment. And so, as Tripp said, I um, my background is in early childhood education, child psychology, and international politics. So when you mix... That is the ideal background for running, keeping the, the lights on in a design group. How to deal with children and politics is... It's, it was perfect. I had no idea. You know, I, I jumped from lily pad to lily pad as a little frog. You know, some people are very straight... They know exactly what they want to be as a child. And I just went, you know, 
uh, from what I love to what I love. And I hope that that's something that people are now able to um, follow that kind of lead. Um, anyway, so yeah, we had this little design idea. Peldy started it and he, um, uh, he employed one guy in Italy as a new designer. And then he realized he needed somebody for the non-technical stuff. And so, um, boom, you're off to the races. We're a multinational corporation on, you know, day one. And it was, you know, the rest is sort of history. I think the culture is of primary importance um, because he learned alongside me and Trip. you saw some of the same things um, at Adobe, is really, truly, people say the most important thing a company has is their human capital, their human resources. And um, it's it can be very difficult to take that uh, really all the way to the finish line. And at Macromedia, I feel like we really saw that. We were able to um, understand those values, those quality of life decisions, work decisions. But as the world changes around us, you know, everything and, and people's lives change around us, things had to start changing. So when uh, when we went from a hard walled office to balsamic, it was immediately remote, right? It started remote. And we do have um, a nice, beautiful, absolutely beautiful office in Bologna, but we're all remote first. And that building is really just serving as a community space that hopefully we can uh, let other little Italian companies come and work and, and use. So, so Val and I have a couple of rules whenever we get together every couple of years when I'm down in the valley or whatever is that we never meet in a bar because we just it just gets too late. I can I can talk to Val all night long. But Val, I, I, I did want to like jump in on a couple of details before uh, Larry, who I think has a lot to say, he ran the design team at Yahoo for a number of years uh, and can compare and contrast. But the the uh, the piece of that is that you didn't quite finish the story. I think like one of the things that you really said that was interesting is that you've jumped from lily pad to lily pad, which is actually oftentimes the most satisfying careers are people that they're able to follow and evolve and not necessarily get locked into a job title. You started as chief of operations and now you've got this weird title of like head of wow and chef at balsamic tell me about how that's evolved and how your perspective on being part of a remote culture and when to tap yourself out and help the, the culture scale because going from two people to five people to 32 people to keep the core of that culture you really need to be intentional about how that change happens that's exactly right, um, Trip. It was super intentional. And again, hat tip to Peldy, who is our technical founder and our CEO. We have a flat organization, but of course, he's the, the top. Um, yeah, when we started, it was the three of us, right? When I started, it was the three of us. And, you know, you could look around and go, oh, who does this? Oh, that's me. Oh, who does that? Oh, that's me too. So as things, as the job got to grow, as our customer base started to grow and as our revenue started to grow, I'm continuously the luckiest person around because Peldy, who is a genius, just said, take what you don't like of your job 
wrap it all up and let's hire somebody to do that. And as the years went on, we just kept doing it. And so I was shaving off little bits and good fences make good neighbors, you know, good management. You have a nicely defined, you do this, I do that. It became through the years, I have the job that I love, which is the job that I'm best at. I'm no good at you know, taxation. And so we hired somebody great at that. And I don't want to do payroll. So we hired somebody great at that. But that is the magic, right? If you can find the value in your heart, which I think is truly the first step, find the value in your heart for what you do that you like. And once you get to a certain age, and you're, you know, sort of self-reliant, and you know what you want to do, it's easier to give away sort of the, you know, the responsibility, what some people might think of as, you know, the top of the heap kind of work. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's my lucky thing is that in growth, I was able to select my not do's. And Val, like, you know, first did of all, you probably, your question? no, you absolutely did. And there's a lot more to dive in on there. And I'm sure like, I can see that Anna and Larry are really rare to jump in, but I want to note that you're probably going to be our inaugural bleep on this episode because, and it's going to be my fault because I think really what you're talking about is something that I talk to people that I mentor is you have to carefully budget your like how many things you're going to be good at and like, what are you going to delegate? But I think like, like budgeting how much you care about and what's within your scope of control and not empire building is really important part. And one of the things that like Larry, I'm sure has some thoughts on this because we've talked a lot as my coach and my mentor over the years, Larry has talked a lot about how do you scale yourself as a leader? And that's it. That takes a lot of humility on giving stuff up that is has a lot of status to it, whether it's the fancy title, but to really grow in the way you want. Larry, Larry, I'm sure you have questions for Val on that. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I think, Val, you've come to the conclusion with your career of a lot of the things that I try to tell people to do, which is take note of what you're really good at doing, what you're not good at doing, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. And to your point, as you get farther into your career, you can start to say, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, not only am I not the best person to do it, there's somebody else who's more talented. And I think that is one of the best ways to grow as a leader is to recognize I no longer have to be the smartest, the most talented, the person with all the answers. The best thing you could possibly do is hire people who are better than you at so many other things, like the things you were mentioning. So, I mean, how does a younger person who's kind of fresher in their career get to that point? That's such a great question. There's a couple of things. I think you even have to break it out into two parts because as a young person, I don't think I truly understood the question, what do you like to do? And learning that, you know, I had a million different jobs and all of them had a component of customer service, whether it was an internal customer, an external customer, you know, an executive, whomever. I, it took me a while to realize that I, I'm a helper. I like to help. I like to get in there and, you know, figure out a puzzle. And it's very nebulous. These are skills that can be hard to identify. 
and also hard to understand the true value of as a young person. So the first thing I would suggest is do a little journaling, do a little thinking. I mean, it's it's very touchy-feely to figure out who you are and your self-directed learning is, I think, the best path. Like, what do you like to learn about? What do you like to read about? I love psychology. I love figuring out why would somebody do that? You know, what what is happening here? And so if you can figure out about your own self, what you like to do, things that are of value, and then try it, you know, you have to, I believe, if I were talking to my child, I would say, try five jobs, you know, spend a year uh, being a bank teller. See if you like that. You like numbers, you like people, you like, I don't even know if bank teller is a job that will exist at the end of this uh, corona, right? But there are things that you can find in yourself and in your skill set that somebody will probably want to pay you for. It's not an easy um, yeah. drill, right? One of the, you know, you kind of highlighted another question, another issue, which is, it's one thing to be self-aware and to know that you should go through this process or even to have one manager who encourages this type of thing. How do you create a company with the culture that recognizes this is the best way to get the most out of people? That's a great question. And with our company, luckily, you know, we're a mature company. We started small. We wanted to say, stay small and our growth was very deliberate. And therefore, we were able to do all those touchy-feely things. You know, we went, when we hire somebody first, they come on as a contractor and, you know, we spend a couple of months with them. And we at Balsamic have a very clearly defined culture. It is very um, servant leader and it's very self-serve and teamy we're all very you know we call each other balsamici which is like amici from friend and balsamic and you know we've got a a clear identity those are um critical to start very uh they can be very difficult to nurture especially through a remote uh team so what we do is we just bring it down we make it as real as real can be we never email. We Slack or we video chat or, or something like that. We get together for a week every year and spend a week solid. And it's really kind of round the clock because we're coming from uh, you know different parts of the world. And, um, and we call that our week to work on the company. So, so Val, for, for those week long get togethers, I mean, are you just, I mean, obviously it's remote, there's a budget and everything. Is it like Columbus, Ohio? Where are you guys getting together for this intense week? Up until last year, we were moving around to meet with people. You know, we kind of had a host, we had a San Francisco team. So one year, everybody from Italy came to San Francisco. We had a New York guy. So one year we all went to New York. Since um, most of us are in Bologna, Italy, what we um, do is now we just get together in Bologna for a week. And at first we would go to Peldi's extra house and, you know, kind of do a slumber party and kids rooms, bunk beds, all of that. And then uh, we kept growing. And now we just take over this little hotel and 
yeah, we invest a lot of time and a lot of money and it's no joke. You know, we are all giving up a week of our, of our time. And it's marvelous, of course, because we're doing teamy things like learning how to make pasta in Italy and all of that. But it's a real week of working on the company. So I'd love to get Anna's perspective on this because I think Anna, like where, you know, Val, Larry, and I are sort of in this Gen X generation, like this is all revelatory for us where we're working remote. We've always sort of come up in this corporate world, dealing with the corporate politics. That's just the way it's supposed to be. You've been working sort of from go in this way. And some of this stuff may just seem like, well, yeah, that's just the way it should work. Um, but I see a lot of like you and Val having a lot of things in common. Um, it just in terms of your experience, like Val, I'd love to hear like your thoughts on like trying to be an expert and sort of apply it versus being this generalist that has hopped lily pads. And then Anna, what are the challenges that you see in trying to like for somebody who's incredibly talented, try to scale this career remotely from the, like, I'd love to see you guys bookend that, that, that challenge. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that Val mentioned was the self-serve aspect of the culture. And I've noticed throughout my career is that any place that's been really, really good to its people usually have autonomous within built in already. Um, and also because I was a freelancer or am a freelancer through so many different types of cultures and companies, I'm always kind of like this outsider looking in, seeing what's working and what's not. And one of my favorite things to do is just try to find the most like jaded, cynical employee there and like pick their brain as to what's not working. And usually if you will always find sort of like, uh, not, not disgruntled, but definitely like they'll have qualms about, the, the work that they're doing. And you know, it's a good company culture when, when the kind of the stressors in their life is more about the work itself than it is about the people that they're working with. And so that's an excellent, like thumb on the pulse there, knowing whether or not some, uh, the company culture is good because they're actually not even talking about the, the workflows that are stressing them out or holding them up or the micromanaging manager, they're just talking about, oh, like this, I'm having this frustrating problem at work, but luckily, you know, I have teams here to help me with that problem and I'm not so alone. So they still have frustrations with different types of frustrations and happier frustrations, I would say, based on good company culture and what that can do for a company. And I love what you just said. It reminds me of two things. The first is uh, people don't, they say, People don't leave jobs because of the job. They leave jobs because of a bad manager or, you know, bad work environment. And I firmly believe that. And the second thing that I love to say is enthusiasm is the most undervalued emotion on the planet. And if you can get, if you can tap into the enthusiasm of your colleagues, whatever it's about, they just light up, you know? Uh, so you might have to spend a little bit of your meeting talking about Funko Pops. I don't know if you guys are up to the Funko Pop challenge, but that's going on right now in Europe. Um, and so, you know, whatever, we have a little Funko Pop fun and then uh you have 
I mean, now I think it's probably a negative sounding um, expression, but I used to call it emotional leverage. You know, like if I go to the mat for you and I need you to cover for me or help me out or, or give me a break because I misspoke, I feel like that comes over time when you have given and taken uh, and we give and take a lot at our company. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I can I can imagine the listener who's never had to think about company culture or has dealt with very very tough and domineering kind of bosses. It's like, oh well, that's easy for you to say. I mean, this is something that you've consciously developed. But I'm just an employee. How do I kind of get out of that kind of rat race and join this like paradise? picture that we're all painting in, uh, on this uh, episode today. Um, do you have any kind of thoughts and feedback on what 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 somebody with quote unquote no power can do to find a good company culture or change the company culture uh, in their current situation? Yeah, I get this question a lot. And I don't know if it's my, you know, my hard head, my experience, but I, or, or just the way I, my intellect, the way I look at life, but I feel like I own my surroundings. And if they're not, if they're suboptimal, it's part of my responsibility, at least my responsibility to myself to make an effort. I own at least half of it, you know. I'm amazed at this point in my life. When people always say, you know, attitude, it's all about your attitude. And I cannot believe it, but I am here to tell you it really is about your attitude. I mean, you can work in a very bad place. And I have worked in some very bad places. And it's all about why am I here? What I spent one year when I left Adobe and before I went to um, Balsamic, I spent one year in a job. That was horrible. I knew walking in it was going to be a horrible job. I knew that I wasn't going to stay there a long time, but I could ride my bicycle there. So I spent one year and I just put that into my my package, right? What does my entire um, compensation include? And after commuting by bike and by train to the city for a decade, it was worth it to me to spend one year in a job that all I wanted to do was have a beautiful bike ride through some nature. And when I got there, it was over by Oracle. So it was beautiful. They had boats all the time. And But I hated the job. There was nothing about it that was for me or using my talents. But I needed to cool my jets after I was in, you know, one long-term relation it was my rebound lover you know once i was with one long-term relationship and before i went to the next one yeah i was just gonna say that i when i work with clients i'm a career coach i say look at your entire compensation as all the factors associated with that company with that boss with that job because it's not just about the money and the stock you know it's not even just about the perks like you were saying, it's like there might be some factor that's really important to you that you're, you're like, you know what, that boss isn't the greatest, but I'm going to learn a lot at this job or I'm going to move into an industry that's going to be a stepping stone for me that will get me to the next job. And so it, it is a different strategic way to think about the career moves that you make to think, how do I look at all the different facets 
of that compensation to make a good decision. And Trip, I know you've you've been in some of these situations too where you've had to make some trade-offs. Yeah, but I've been as smart about him as Val or let him, <laughs> let, him, let, him let him roll off as well. Uh, but I think like that's one of the things that we're talking about in terms of the trade-offs that we've talked about on prior episodes is that you cut that two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour round-trip Bay Area commute out of your life. That equates to 50 plus days a year of extra vacation, mm-hmm. right? You've divide that out into eight hour work days. You're getting a massive raise when you take a job that's a lateral that allows you to get that much more into your life. It's really about putting the people talk about work life balance, but they never talk about the ratio. This kind of like makes it a little bit more of a 50, 60 or a 60, 40. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also one thing I wanted to loop back on was, Val, your comment on um, attitude is that one of the superpowers for you that I've always admired, like we didn't work together that long, but we've been friends to like 13 years. Right, like right. you're always constant, you know, like we're, we've, we've, we've talked to one another and it's like, we always just catch up. You have like, if they talk about multiple intelligence and emotional intelligence and like in an emotional intelligence fashion, you're a genius because I've never mm-hmm. seen somebody be able to say the things that you say and get away with it and have everybody in the room laughing, right? So so like, that's one of the things, like we've, we warned Val coming on that like we need 70% Val on the podcast, but like there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of that. And I think also that emotional leverage, like I do that too, but I do it because I genuinely like helping people, but there's this expression, there's this expectation where, Someday I'm going to ask you a favor, you know, and it's like, I never, I would never say no to you because I know how much you've done for me. I remember like you had your daughter who's now well out of college. Her first, her first babysitting gig was with my daughter, you know, and it was like those sorts of connections, like that last an entire career career right. is built on those connections. What do, What do you think of that? Are you asking me what I think of that? I think that's yeah, the way it no, should be. A- that's the world should be this way, right? That's that's the beginning and the end of it, right? If you can make a human connection with someone, in my mind, you know, work is a lot of BS. There's a lot of just, you just have to do it, right? And that's why they call it work, right? But if I can... Again, um, it's that payment that I get out of it. If I can get to hold your baby, are you kidding? That's like, you know, win. I win. That's a good week. And also, Tripp, I want to go back to what you were saying about the time that you save from not being a commuter. I completely retook baths and stories because when I was commuting, it was two hours. Is that Maeve? Ah, look at that baby Maeve. You guys, Anna, you guys have probably seen a Maeve. I've got Maeve on camera here. Maeve was, uh, I think, about 12 months when Val's daughter, and this is the first time she's seen her live. So that's Valerie. Hi, Maeve. Hi, beautiful. You ginger. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> I think we are at such a crossroads right now between merchants changing how they work if you can find the humanity it's so simple it sounds so stupid people are like oh another podcast about humanity but i'm here to tell you as god is my witness the truth is 
your life is just better if you look somebody in the eye and remember they're somebody's brother. You know? Yeah, I would just like to make kind of a note that when you're in a very terrible job, uh, it can feel like you're drowning. And I can totally understand like listening to Valve being like, well, it's just, she's so happy. And of course it's going to work out for her, but you know, that's not going to apply to me. Um, how does one get a positive go lucky kind of attitude? Like how did you kind of find your way through that when you're doing dead end jobs and jobs that just were absolutely terrible? I mean, I've also been in terrible jobs too. And so it's kind of like, I think it's a right of privilege or a badge of privilege at one point to just go through a terrible job, but it's kind of like getting out of that. It can seem so uh, daunting or just, you're just drowning, you know, you don't, you got to pay bills, you got to do this and you just, you got a manager that sucks. There is no arguing with the fact that a toxic environment is not good for you. It's not good for your health. It's not good for your future. It's not good for anything, right? So if we're, if you're talking about a seriously rotten situation where somebody is just an, a, you know, a nut job to work with and had that, you know, I've had that there. You definitely have to, again, it's sizing up your own needs, your own, you ha you can't be hungry, right? If you're, if you're not going to be able to live without this paycheck, then, you know, I'm not going to tell you jump ship, right? But you have got to figure out your own psychological tool belt that will allow you to make it through a day without thinking that the situation is you or that person's behavior is yours, right? I'm a big fan of fill your backpack with all your tools that you need to take care of yourself. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, what you're talking about resonates so strongly with the message that I try to, to tell people in their, their own careers is get so good at what you do that you have options, that you get to determine how people treat you. And we've all had bad bosses. And when I was younger, I put up with a lot of garbage from bosses, but then I got pretty good at what I do. And I remember speaking with one boss. And I said, you know, I don't have to put up with this. I said, I can walk out the door and have a job tomorrow. I'm here because I want to be, but I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to let you scream at me and curse at me. It's like, this has got to change. I, um, you took the words right off of our corporate, uh, what do we call them? Our values, our corporate values. And one of them is be so good. They can't ignore you. Right. That's a Steve Martin quote from way back. But the idea there is exactly what you said. If you are so good at your job um, and your personal boundaries, and that is how people treat you, how you think of yourself when, when you're at work, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that's, for me, that's the winning combination. I have a little superiority complex, though, so it's easy for me to jump out. <laughs> so, a little bit from the conversation like how does somebody find a good work culture because sometimes you know you get to the pearly gates it all sounds super great and then the moment you enter into this work environment you find the disaster uh, the tsunami everything's leaking and you're sinking ship so what kind of um, I guess strategies or 
uh, telltale signs that you know it's a good it's a good work culture that you're joining into, and you're not you know spinning your wheels in an, another toxic environment. That's a really good question. I think by now, uh, you know, we're Ju- we're June 2020. People in I'm in San Francisco. People have been in lockdown for 30, uh, excuse me, three months, four months, something like that. We have enough written down. There's enough resource where you can Google what's a good work environment. You know, do you have like, for example, at my company, I run the media club where once a month we pick a movie, we watch it uh, in whatever country we are in. And then for 45 minutes, we get together over coffee or wine and we discuss that. So if, you know, if you're interviewing and looking for a company where you want to land, ask them straight up during the interview, what's your culture like? How do you feel? How do you respond when somebody has a completely different take on software licensing than you do? How, what does that discussion look like? Is it top down? Is it don't ask, don't tell? You know, we, we say things in our, in our email signatures, we're good people and we care. That goes out in every email. You can't be a jerk and have that in your email signature, right? So we have it set up. I always say I run this place like my customers are my little brother. You made a mistake, let me help you. I'm on your team. We're not here for the price of our software. Our mission is to help rid the world of bad software. And so if you're joined with us on that mission, the money can be secondary or the purchase can be said. We want you to use the best tool. might not be our tool, so that's why we've got a whole resource part of our website that shows here are some other uh, software applications that you should consider because ours might not be the best, et cetera. So yeah, definitely there are bad cultures out there run like your hair is on fire unless you're the one who they're hiring to make a cultural change and then run with both arms wide open. What an opportunity. Oh, that's, that's one of the, the, deci- the bad decisions in my life is like, come save us from ourselves, but we don't want to change anything. Mm-hmm. I, I think like <laughs> nobody sets out a, to, to create a bad culture. And oftentimes cultures are reflective of their founders or the leadership uh, and their attitudes. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to go with like how open to criticism, how self-reflective is that leader. But, you know, Yogurt has a culture too. Uh, there's lots of companies out there that are signaling lots of virtue, but then spying on you, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, talking about their inclusion, but uh, they're having to cherry pick who shows up in their corporate propaganda on their hiring site. Now, it's interesting because I remember reading about Zappos's culture because they're they're seen as a company Tony that has Faye, a great yeah. culture. Absolutely. Yeah. And the one thing Tony said that stuck with me because they said, well, what would you have changed about the culture? What do you wish you had done differently? And he said, I wish I'd started on it on day one. Mm. That was the only thing. He's like, I should have started on culture on day one because I think – I know I talk with some companies they are like eh, culture schmulture, you know, they're like, whatever, we'll just put together a 10 list of principles we care about. And that's culture, right? It's like, no, it's not. It's not. And it go, it, like you were saying, it permeates everything, how you work with each other, how you communicate to customers, how you do hiring, every single aspect 
of the company starts with the culture and it starts at the top. People are watching who gets rewarded, who's in power. And it, it resonates with people are like, oh, I guess I have to behave like that. I'm sure, Anna, you've seen that with some of the companies you work with too. Yeah. And I mean, actually, that was my next question for everybody here, really. Like, um, if you are a manager or maybe even CEO or part of executive leadership that wants to kind of cultivate this more consciously, what would be, I don't know if there's like 10 steps, obviously it would be more, much more complicated than that, but at least uh, kind of the tidbits information that we got to sprinkle into the audience here to have them think proactively on how to introduce these subjects to um, other leadership members or to their board or even to their team that they're working with right now. So um, it's odd to bring up my time at Amazon. I was there for six years uh, as a stalwart of culture. Uh, Amazon's culture doesn't get a lot of positive press. And they're very famous for saying we're willing to be misunderstood. But um, that culture has been very intentionally designed for a very, very long time. Uh, and that the, the, the benefit there and a lot of what there's a saying inside of Amazon, I don't think it came from Amazon that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast (laughs) because it really indicates the norms of how people are expected to behave, what they'll be rewarded for, what they'll be chastised or held accountable for. Um, and I think it really comes down to ethics ethics are the things that you live by the principles that you live by and one of the things that i really admired about being at amazon is their 14 leadership principles were how we talk to each other on a daily basis if somebody wasn't moving is like i need to see some bias for action i need to see you take some ownership over this that's not customer obsessed like those are the things where you're quoting like from the little red book of jeff of of those leadership principles but it was very clear what we were trying to communicate and what the critique was about that is like this is not us we don't necessarily care about what wall street cares about we don't care about like what our vendors care about we care about what our customers care about and servicing them and you know the culture i've affectionately called it fight club and i've called it sparta but sparta had a culture too and it what is what made sparta great even if you didn't necessarily appreciate all that Sparta was about. They had a very clear worldview on who they were and who they weren't. I would just like to jump in to say, um, the, I, my, I work for an American company, which is owned by an Italian company, right? And it was very early on that when we were talking about success and longe- longevity and uh, all of that, Peldi said, you know, American companies, um, they measure their success in quarters. In Italy, we measure our success in generations. And it was so lovely. You know, it's just, it takes so much pressure off. We're like in a super anti-pressure, you know, Peldi's, one of our phrases is it's just software, you know, nobody's going to die here. It is unusual, our our culture. It's true. It's so refreshing to hear how your founder thinks about things because I think it's so much about how the founder establishes what the culture is going to be like. And, you know, Anna had kind of talked about, well, how does somebody find a good culture? How does someone create a better culture? And I think with leaders, so much of it, just from my own experience, is 
being willing to listen. So listening a heck of a lot more than you dictate. And that's hard for leaders who are type A and driven. And you think, I think one of the things, the way I was educated is like, you got to be a strong leader who takes charge and you have the vision and the strategy and you tell everybody what to do. And then as I matured and became a leader myself, it's like, no way can one person be the vision for the entire company forever or scale the company. And the best thing that you can do as a leader is to talk with everyone and listen. And I know I valued honesty and transparency because I felt like I didn't always receive that. And so I wanted to be that kind of leader, which is like, I'm always going to listen to you. I'm always going to be honest and transparent. It may not always be what you want to hear. It may not always be what I want to hear. But, you know, how can we move forward if we're not all on the same page and being honest with each other? So I think that's the first step of creating a great culture is talk to your people, talk to your customers, figure out what you want to be together, and then create that culture versus come in with an iron fist and say, well, here's how we're going to behave. Um, One little story that I'm proud to share, uh, Peldi is in Bologna, Italy. And Italy got hit much earlier and much stronger by the corona um, virus than a lot of other places. And at a certain point, as it started to come over here too, and, and nobody knew what was going on, he said, my country is working at about 50% right now. I am working at about 50% right now. I expect the rest of the company is also working at about 50% right now. So take it easy, you know, figure it out. Uh, unusual. We have such an unusual culture, but it's possible to replicate this. You know, if you can just, I, I think the one of the critical keys for us was we started small. Peldy had been through corporate America. He had seen all that works and all that doesn't work. And when you start as a, you know, a solopreneur, you get to choose a lot of what you value and don't value. We just happen to be super lucky because, you know, Adobe was our biggest customer right at the beginning, right? So we had a nice stream of revenue right from the get-go. Not every company can say that. But that aside... Um, our culture is still probably the most important thing that we deal with, not our numbers. Yeah, and I think that's um, an excellent point to kind of wrap up on. I mean, uh, definitely leadership has to kind of take charge, 50% running in capacity. I mean, it just takes kind of a out-of-the-box thinking almost when it comes to developing something that everybody can just relax into, you know. Um, so with that being said, what is one, I guess, key takeaway somebody can listening to this podcast can implement in their life? Um, let's give them to one from an employee's standpoint and one from perhaps leadership standpoint, uh, Val, why don't you go first? Great question. So from leadership standpoint, you know, just remember for you, the rest of your team work is just one slice of their pie. They're doing their best recognize their effort and uh, it's crazy times so who knows you know i'm just a big listener on that i'm gonna go back to that and as an employee 
You know, I think that fun is underrated. So yesterday I showed up to my one of my team meetings with my ukulele and, you know, we had a little sing-along to start the meeting out. I'm just a big fan of fun. And if you're not having fun, you're missing out. There is room for fun in your day. Don't don't kid yourself. <laughs> don't kid yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say as a leader, I think if you don't recognize that to get the most amazing work out of people, they have to be happy, then you're in trouble. Because if you think it's threats and threats of layoffs and firing, and I remember all that kind of stuff from bad bosses, but the bosses that got the best out of the team were the ones that respected us. And, and it was fun. We loved working with each other. We worked really hard. We were our most creative under those conditions. So I think you're absolutely right. It's like make things enjoyable for people and you'll get the most amazing work out of your employees versus, you know, having a workplace where people feel some fear or stress, you know, that's not going to be your best work. Um, from the employee perspective, I was going to say that the world provides so much information now that it is so easy to find people who've worked for a specific company or a boss uh, it's easy to network and talk with people and find the truth. So ask the questions during the interviews, of course, but then do some research, do some homework and say, how is that person really like, what do they really like to work for? What does that company really like? And then you'll get the truth about the culture and make a better decision. How about you, Anna? Yeah, I think um, for the employee's perspective, one of the best ways to build connection and rapport is to try and find similarities with your coworkers. So even if you have the most difficult person on the team who might even be toxic and you're just like, oh, I could never like stand this person in real life and like, here I am working them with them 20, you know, eight hours a day, maybe um, trying to find commonalities where you guys can bond over that. And then maybe you can find sort of a ground, like a, a ground zero, basically, to, to a better working relationship. And then with leadership, um, I think it, it starts with you, obviously. Uh, I would say that to build a, a good culture, it's kind of what Valve had said earlier, it's to ask your employees, like, what don't you like about your job and how can I make that easier on you? Um, that's like a quick, easy question to ask them currently. You know, what don't you like? Think about it. Come back to me and let's come up with solutions on how we can outsource that and make your make your day a little bit better. So if you liked what you heard today, subscribe, email us, topics you'd like us to cover, any questions you might have about company culture, how to create one yourself as a leader, um, we'd be happy to help. Val, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Employee number two of Balsamic. I mean, impressive. And I love what you guys are doing with the culture there. And I love how you're running it. It's, it sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. This was so great. Great to run into my old friend Trip. So nice to meet you guys. Anna, thank you so much for, uh, for helping put this together. And if you want to stay updated on future episodes, just go to thebraveworkforce.com or bravenewcompanies.com. Thank you.